Hello and welcome to Within Normal Limits, COPIC's podcast featuring discussions of patient safety in the modern healthcare world. I'm your host, Eric Zacharias, a risk manager and patient safety consultant at COPIC. I'm also our director of medical education and on clinical faculty at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. I'm a practicing internal medicine physician, and I want to thank you for listening and helping us further COPIC's mission of improving medicine in the communities we serve. Now, an exciting legal disclaimer. Uh, information provided in this podcast should not be relied upon for personal, medical, legal, or financial decisions, and you should consult an appropriate professional for specific advice that pertains to your situation. Healthcare providers should exercise their professional judgment in connection with the provision of healthcare services. The information contained in this podcast is not intended to be, nor is it, a substitute for medical diagnosis, treatment, advice, or judgment relative to a patient's specific condition. Thank you for joining us. So this is Eric Zacharias. Welcome back to Within Normal Limits. We have as a guest today, Anna Barr, who's a nurse risk manager at Copic. Uh, she lives in Omaha, Nebraska. She's a native Nebraskan, or at least I hope you are, because I believe you are. And yeah. we're going to talk today about informed consent and informed refusal. So welcome to Within Normal Limits, Anna. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So let's get let's get the basics out of the way. You did grow up in Nebraska. Yes, I am an RN from small town Nebraska, um, so I have a heart for the critical access hospitals and the smaller groups out there, um, but then I went to the University of Nebraska for undergrad, go Huskers, and then I completed my nursing education at UNMC, um, and then I went on to work as a bedside cardiac nurse for four years in Lincoln, Nebraska, and then did some travel assignments in Colorado and Nebraska in like a float pool and neuro floors before starting with Copic three and a half years ago. Well, we've enjoyed having you. And when you're not doing Copic work and when you weren't doing nursing work, what do you like to do for fun? Well, I love my husband. We like to go try different restaurants. We're big foodies. We like to travel. Um, we like playing with our golden retriever going on walks and um, whenever I'm near water, which is not all the time since I live in Nebraska, I love to go swimming, scuba diving, anything water involved. I am obsessed with that. So that's kind of what I like to do on the side. Well, that's fun stuff. Well, we're going to talk about informed consent and informed refusal. And this is a topic we visited uh, before using you know, different concepts, different uh, guests to talk about it. It's such a key area. I really don't think it's an area we can overemphasize. And so I'm going to try to answer this question, and then I'm going to give you a crack at answering what is informed consent. And I'm going to say it's the communication process. You know, the concept is patients should have autonomy and the right to self-determination. By the way, I'm quoting this from a source. Uh, you know, based on a presentation of the kind of information that a reasonable person would, would want to know about before making a decision. So it doesn't have to be all information. You can't present a textbook of information. What to you are, how would you define informed consent uh, in, in your world as a nurse risk manager? Yeah, and I think we preach this at Copic all the time, but um, informed consent is not form it's not the paper it's the process and it's an ongoing process um, and it occurs when communication between a patient and a provider results in the patient's agreement to undergo a specific medical intervention and 
Um, I think the informed consent process and also the supporting documentation um, remains to be one of the most important patient safety tools that providers have. Um, it's our strongest advocate if we do it well, um, because like you said, and as we all know, patients have a right to make well-informed decisions about their care and treatment, and this process is the key to that. The goal is shared decision-making, like you said. Yeah, I, I like it, and you know, it's important for, for many reasons, and um, maybe I'll throw that your way. Um, yeah. Why, why does it exist? Why is it indeed important to give this autonomy to patients? Is it just to be nice? Well, it is, it is nice, Eric. That's, that's true. But um, also, when consent is truly informed, um, there's inherently less room for misinterpretations, misunderstandings, or errors. Um, as for the benefits of it, we've, we've seen that it actually improves patient safety and quality of care. Um, we've seen better health outcomes with chronic illness, better surgical outcomes when there's a good informed consent. Um, it also is a legal requirement and is required by many accreditation organizations and for good reason. Um, but I think once we stop viewing it as an obligatory box to check um, and instead as a really helpful tool in fostering trust and understanding with our patients, we start viewing it through a better lens and start using it more effectively in our practices. No, I, I like that point. You know, if you think of this as, oh, I'm going to begrudgingly do this because the hospital governance board requires me to do it, hey, you're probably not going to be the world's best, most engaged provider around the informed <laughs> consent process, right? Right. Yeah. And, and so, wh when is it required? Yeah. Um, so, an exhaustive, like, continually updated national list describing when informed consent is required doesn't exist at this time and requirements do vary state by state so we recommend organizations work with their legal counsel to confirm those state requirements and maintain an updated list of their own but generally speaking the following list is standard in most institutions so all procedures in using general or regional anesthesia heart caths endoscopies treadmill tests um, toe locks chemotherapy, blood transfusion, insertion of devices or appliances under the skin, um, newborn screening, genetic testing, clinical trials, reproductive procedures, and general surgery. Um, an actual paper form is recommended for most of those that I listed due to their invasiveness. Um, but when it comes to more minor procedures, um, some sort of customized notation in the medical record is warranted. Um, I also like to mention long-term medications like anticoagulation meds, opioids, corticosteroids, and allergy injections, injections as well. Well, I love that you added the medicines. You know, as an internist, uh, I feel slighted when people only say procedures are, are major interventions. A lot of the medications we give are powerful, they're life-saving, and they're not without risk. And so one, one should make an informed decision around chemotherapeutic agents, anti-seizure medications, anticoagulants, long-term opioids, long-term corticosteroids, and on and on. And uh, I also like how you describe there is no specific list, and thank goodness, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's really a concept, and I like to think that, I mean, sure, there's laws, there's governance, and there's 
uh, if your hospital requires informed consent for something, for goodness sake, do it. But that really sets the floor. You know, you can, you know, you're always having some type of informed consent you discuss med. Like I never done an informed consent for lisinopril for hypertension, but I sure as heck talk about the medication and make sure the patient yeah. understands it. And you know, I like to think, you know, when you go to that next level of a form, it's like, well, you know, would a reasonable person want to have enough information around this that it might warrant uh, a form to help me document this conversation so the, in, in the event of an adverse outcome around something, you know, incredibly complicated, uh, we have that documentation of the thought, of, of, the, of the interaction, and, and also for me, the consent process, it makes me a more thoughtful provider because like this is not a trivial thing that I'm getting ready. You know, I'm going to put this person on uh, three months of corticosteroids for um, uh, their sarcoid, or yeah, you know, that's a big deal. Yeah, and I probably ought to have that informed consent. Yeah, absolutely. So, so who should do the informed consent, and what makes an informed consent, or what makes a good informed consent? Well, the short answer is that the informed consent process should ultimately take place between the provider performing the procedure and then the patient or patient representative. Um, the nurse, PAs, NPs, techs, they all can assist in providing educational materials, um, responding to questions. Um, but I think it's so important to emphasize that the provider performing the procedure is the one to actually participate in the main consent discussion with the patient and allow the patient time to ask them questions because they know best, you know, what are the risks, what is this going to look like, and, you know, can give the patient all the information that they need um, to make a good informed consent. And then as for what makes a good informed, uh, you know, a complete informed consent, um, well, I think it's important that the information be tailored for each individual patient, but every informed consent should include the nature of the medical condition, the nature of the procedure, including its indications and benefits, um, the alternative treatments available, if any, and the substantial risks, including those specific to the patient involved in undergoing the procedure or the alternative treatments. And this includes the risks of not proceeding as well. Um, something else I like to mention is that we're often really good about informing people about the procedure, but we're not as good about informing them of the process that may occur afterward. For example, if someone's going to have a colostomy bag, what does that all entail once they go home? Um, because those details matter just as much as the procedure itself as well. Those are excellent points. And you, you mentioned you know, what, kind of what helps make an informed consent a good, a good process. Uh, when should you do it? Uh, you know, someone's getting ready to have a procedure. Um, they have a bad outcome. Uh, is, that the, is that the time you want to do the informed consent uh, after they've already had the complication? Does that work out well? Yeah, probably not. Probably not afterwards and, and preferably not when the patient is actively, you know, being sedated in the pre-op room. Um, that's also not ideal. <laughs> um, we want to do it when the patient has full cognitive capacity. Um, and when they have time to process the risks and benefits and when they still have options. So it depends on the situation, but we like to see when the informed consent process is conducted outside the walls of the hospital and well in advance of the contemplated procedure. Um, 
there's definitely value to our providers having a thoughtful and detailed conversation with the patient in a less stressful setting. Um, and I'm glad you asked this, Eric, because I get questions from insurers a lot um, on this exact topic. And I wanted to ask your thoughts on, um, you know, is there a point when that consent expires and they should get a, a whole new one? Um, and I just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, full disclosure, Anna didn't ask me to, ahead of time, so I don't know the actual answer, but I'll do, I'll do my best um, you know, <laughs> to the parents to Anna for putting me on the spot. So the answer is, uh, it's what, well, there's two answers to it. The first is, it is often governed by the regulatory body where you're doing the procedure, by the ASU, by the hospital system, where it has to be within a certain time frame. Um, and, and if it has been outside that time frame, most will simply say, re-review the information and if anything has changed. And the reason that exists, of course, is because sometimes there have been substantial changes um, you know, based on the patient's clinical situation. So the number one is just the regulatory thing. You want to be within those. Number two is if there's not a regulatory statute specifically, the legal standard you would be held to from a malpractice uh, standpoint is, you know, what would a reasonable and prudent provider do in similar similar circumstances for a patient undergoing this? You know, certainly we can come up with an absurd, you know, a seven-year-old consent for a bypass procedure probably is expired. Right. Um, you know, if 30 days okay, is 31 days not okay? You know, there, there certainly is a window where it crosses over, and the good news is it's usually not so proscriptive that it has to be unless there's a regulatory um, requirement where your facility is. It's just what is a reasonable amount? Has something changed substantially, in which case you want to amend or add an addendum uh, to the consent process and have it within a window that would be a reasonable time frame. And, you know, we're loathe, as you're well aware, to give a specific number where one doesn't exist because somehow we would be saying that might be the standard. And the standard is reasonableness. It's not a specific number. And so I would just advise everybody to think, if I were the patient, you know, would, would I consider myself reasonably informed um, if, if this is a slightly older consent? And there's absolutely great value in re-reviewing that at the time of the procedure. Say, we went over this uh, 47 days ago. Let's just go over it one more time to make sure you remember these potential risks. I think that's very important. Yeah, I agree. I just got to keep you on your toes, Eric, with these questions, you know. Make sure you're awake. <laughs> no, I like it. I, was, um, uh, I wasn't on ESPN Sports Center or anything like that, I promise. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, there are a lot of – really so what, what, are the, what are the barriers uh, to a good – or, you know, some of the barriers just to take into account. You know, you uh, help with um, risk strategies for groups. What are some of the things you see uh, that uh, can be barriers to a good consent process? Yeah, so a lot of times with the forms specifically, we can tend to get caught up in the medical terminology, but we forget that this doesn't always translate to a lot of people. Um, the patient needs to understand what it says and what they're agreeing to or we're defeating, you know, the whole purpose of it. So some other barriers are feelings of intimidation and stress or time pressure. Um, patients with low health literacy 
cognitive impairment or special circumstances, and also limited English proficiency as well. Um, on the provider side, we can see barriers with the lack of time that they have for complete patient education. Um, so that's when we can kind of see inappropriate delegation to others. Um, we also see providers sometimes having wrong assumptions about patient comprehension and also just confusion about when informed consent is needed. So in order to overcome those barriers, we need to standardize our processes and expectations among staff. Um, with each individual patient, we need to assess their ability to understand relevant med medical information. Um, they need to be able to understand the implications of the treatment alternatives. And finally, we need to be able to evaluate their ability to make an independent voluntary decision. So we can also look at simplifying our forms using teach back approaches during the conversation and really just taking the necessary time to build that relationship and understanding. Um, from a leadership level, it's important to increase internal knowledge with staff and these expectations and policies and provide education and training for providers and then audit those processes to check on compliance with that. Um, I also recommend to a lot of our insureds to interview their patients to make sure that they're satisfied with the consent discussions that are taking place. And finally, to prevent fallout, we recommend adding consent forms as part of your surgical safety checklist as well. I like it. Now, that should be a part of the checklist. Uh, it certainly be reasonable to include it as part of that. So we've been singing the virtues of, of doing a good informed consent. And one more point on this. Yeah, let's say you don't do it. What are the consequences of lacking a good and a true informed consent? Yeah, so with that, there's been shown to be an increased number of patient safety incidents and medical errors and increased number of malpractice cases. Um, there's just can be violations of professional and ethical obligations. And finally, you're putting yourself at risk for reputational harm by not implementing a solid informed consent process. Sounds pretty bad. Yeah, we want to avoid that. Yeah, at all I, I agree. And, and the, the cousin or the, I don't even know what the right uh, metaphor is. I'm going to go with cousin. But the cousin like of it. the informed consent is the informed refusal. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that. But it is a device we're using more and more, recommending more and more. Uh, what is the informed refusal? Yeah, so, uh, informed refusal is similar to an informed consent in that it isn't just a form or paper. It's a process. And it's specifically a process where the physician or provider documents having disclosed potential risks to a patient who indicates that they do not intend to follow the recommended advice. And I think of it being different from just your typical AMA because I think we associate AMA a lot of the time with the patient leaving, you know, the facility or the hospital. And I think this informed refusal process can be utilized in many settings. Um, to emphasize the importance of the recommendation, I think it's one more opportunity to have that discussion at length with the patient as to why you're recommending this. And, you know, they're like, oh, if, I'm have, if my provider who I trust um, is having me sign this paper, this must be really important. So I think it's one more opportunity to emphasize that. And then we also get questions about if the patient refuses then to sign the informed refusal. Um, and that's okay, you know, we can't make them do it, but 
if they refuse to sign it, we encourage to make a note on the form and place it in the medical record and just document in the in the chart that you had a discussion about possible risks. And, um, and when you document this in the chart, we encourage you to put why they're refusing and include quote, quotations even from the patient themselves. That can be really helpful. Yeah, I agree. I love the informed refusal as a nudge device where sometimes when patients fully understand the consequences of their declining a procedure or an intervention. And, you know, frankly, the medical system is scary, can be more scary to others. And who are we to know somebody's life path as to why they might be declining something? We don't know everything in their, in their background and experiences. And sometimes during that informed refusal conversation about why you would really like them to do something that they're actively declining, some of this might come out, just really helps facilitate that communication and, and the provider-patient uh, bond is also enhanced. And, you know, reasonable people can decline therapy, which you know would be potentially helpful for very, very important reasons to them. And the informed refusal conversation, I think it humanizes their declining a little bit. I think we get busy and sometimes, uh, you know, I'll speak for myself, not for others. When someone declines what we recommend, you take it as a maybe a little personal, like, well, I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm telling you what's, what's best. But there's, there, there's so much more going on uh, in, in people's lives. So I think, you know, the informed refusal maybe has our, you know, our best interests at heart as providers to, um, you know, keep our professionalism high and it also makes the patients feel hurt. Absolutely. I totally agree. It's a great tool. Uh, okay. Last question. Um, say I'm an interested party. I listened to this podcast and I thought, wow, these sound great. Where can I find sample uh, informed consent and informed refusal uh, forms. Yes, it's COVID. Where, uh, where can we find us? <laughs> That's a great question, Eric. I'm so glad you asked. You can find so many um, sample consent and refusal forms uh, by going to our website, which is, for those who don't know, callcopic.com. And you'll see tabs across the top. Um, one of them is called the Resource Center tab. And if you click on that, it'll drop down and say medical guidelines and tools, and all the consent forms are, are listed under that. Um, we've developed these sample forms um, very diligently. We've worded them very specifically for a reason, and we want our insureds to download those and use those in their own practices. Or you can just take it and put it side by side with the ones you already have and see if there's any room for improvement or updates. Um, as well. So we highly encourage use of those and we try to keep those updated as needed. I like it. And how much extra do they have to pay for that uh, for that form and service? Um, zero dollars. Zero dollars. Sounds like a great service, Anna. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on Within Normal Limits. I, I appreciate, whenever I talk about this topic, I just appreciate more and more uh, how important these forms are, not because they're pieces of paper, not because what the legal team put on there, or not because you know what JCO says a hospital has to do for hip replacement consents, but because it facilitates that provider-patient relationship, it improves outcomes, 
and you know at a time where we're all busy and the healthcare world is it can be stressful for some patients it just seems like this is a, a great great process all around so I'll give you the last word on consent and refusal yeah I think it's just going to continue to be an important thing and like you said it's just busy and it's easy to fall through the cracks. So we just want to continue to really put this high on your priority list and your own practices. And if you have any specific questions with it, we're here for you. So reach out to Copic and we'll help you as best we can. Anna Barr, nurse risk manager based in Omaha. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Scambati, a colorectal surgeon and medical director of Copic thanking you for being a listener. We hope you find Within Normal Limits to be interesting and informative as we at Copic continue with new ways to bring you content relevant to our mission. Please email us at wnlpodcast at copic.com with show ideas or topics you would like to see addressed in future episodes of Within Normal Limits, Navigating Medical Risk. Also, Please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss any of our content. And while you're at it, please give us a rating if you enjoyed our show.